Hello and welcome to another episode of Sounds Like Comics, the podcast devoted to all things comic books in movies and TV. I'm Luke. And I'm Jay. Today's topic, The Green Hornet, the action comedy film based on the character of the same name. Directed by Mikhail Gondry from a screenplay by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. The film stars Rogen in the title role, John Chow, Christopher Waltz, Edward James Almos, David Harbour, Tom Wilkinson and Cameron Diaz. The movie is based upon the Green Hornet radio series created by George W. Trendle. This is your warning. We will be talking spoilers. Yeah, the Green Hornet, um, an interesting character, like you said, mentioned, uh, created for radio because at the time uh, TV wasn't a thing and people's entertainment radio shows. And this was in like what we'd call the superhero boom of radio over the 30s where they had a Lone Ranger radio show, the Shadow radio show and other large characters of that ilk. And he was created entirely new to compete with those um and then brought into comics in the 40s for a small company there was only six episodes uh six issues i should say initially in 1941 um as written by the co-creator fran striker uh which were basically scripts of the show done as comic books but then was picked up a, a year later by harvey comics um but it never made it out of the forties last issue released in 1949. And that was it. That was it for the green Hornet. Um, he had some live action shorts in the forties, but up until the sixties TV series with Bruce Lee as Cato and, uh, Van Williams playing green Hornet. There was no green Hornet anywhere right up until in the, uh, the 90s, a comic company, Now Comics, picked up the rights. And then it was when they finished that they started talking about the idea of a Green Hornet film. That's it's such a strange, like, when, they, when Now Comics picked up the license in 1989, it was for free. It, the copyright was out of print and they just picked him up whole hog which, you know, these days is unheard of. No one gets the free character, uh, such a long-standing character as well, for nothing. That's a lot, Jay. <laughs> You're going a lot of ground <laughs> there with Green Hornet. You mentioned uh, in the comics, I know recent years, Dynamite have had the rights to the character. And as recent as one week ago, I read an issue one of a Green Hornet comic, this one written by Scott Lobdell. Oh, Are he's good? the writer now. Yeah, because yeah. since 2009, uh, which was when uh, I think they made the official announcement for the film, was in 2009, uh, Dynamite picked up the license and it was based off Kevin Smith's script. Uh, Kevin Smith had been uh, paid in 1999 or 2004, he was approached by Harvey Weinstein to do a Green Hornet movie, which he said he was ne- he'd never do a script for a superhero movie again after the whole Superman Lives fiasco. <laughs> yeah. But Weinstein was able to uh, convince him otherwise because they had such a good working relationship and he worked on the script. And the changes he made, it sounded like it would uh, be a really interesting take. It was going to be the son of the original green hornet which was Britt reed jr um his main villain was going to be the black hornet a yakuza gangster whose father had been killed by the original green hornet and had taken on the name black hornet as like a way to to chip away at the man who'd killed his father and that kato would uh take Britt reed jr away to train um after his father had been killed by the Black Hornet um, and would serve as Kato for a limited time before his daughter Mulan took over as a female Kato for the film. And that was going to be the thing. Like he'd go, his father would be killed. He'd go away with Kato senior for three years, train with his Kato and his daughter and then come back and start superhero work. And Kato realized I'm too old for this and hand down to his daughter. I'm like, huh, 
interesting. Um, but that's not the movie we we get. Um, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. I'd heard initially this was supposed to be two different films, that there was supposed to be a Green Hornet film in production at... Um, Columbia. Um, this was um, Sony. This Columbia, movie. yeah. Yeah, Sony. Yeah. They were, they were to do a Green Hornet movie and that Seth Rogen had approached them with his own superhero comedy and then Suits being Suits had decided, oh, well, we've also just picked up Green Hornet. Why don't you take your movie and stitch it into what we had? That wasn't apparently the case at all on my research for this podcast. He was looking to do a superhero movie um, because he'd just gotten shape at the time. Um, and was looking to increase his presence and kind of break out a little bit of the superhero, uh, the comedy role, and was offered Green Hornet. And then him and Evan Goldberg sat down to do this. Um, and the director, although having done some phenomenal work, directed uh, Be Kind, Rewind with Jack Black and uh, Def, Moss Def, and uh, Eternal, Spot, uh, Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind with Jim Carrey. But two really great movies. Um, and he was attached to do this back in the late 90s uh, when George Clooney was attached to be <laughs> the Green Hornet. And wow. he, he, of course, dropped that to be Batman. But yeah, um, he's actually known more for being a music video director. Oh, wow. So back before he had done, he directed any films, he was known as a music video director. And then, you know, he had eventually done other stuff before he got back around to doing Green Hornet, which was going to be his original film work. This is a movie with a funny history. There's so much to unpack like with, with everything you just said there. Yeah, okay, I didn't know. I didn't know they were looking at Clooney initially for, for Britt Reid. Seth Rogen, I did read that he had to shed 30 pounds. So he really did have to slim down quite a bit. And it looks so different in this movie compared to most roles. And it's very interesting to see Rogen in this because he's a guy that doesn't wait for a movie to come to him. He'll just go and make a movie. Similar to, yeah. similar, similar to Adam Sandler. Like if you if you look at his back catalogue and and it's it's he's done a lot of movies, right? So many. But if you have a look, yeah. but how many movies has he actually been hired for? Like his production company, Happy Madison, didn't produce themselves. He's got Punch Drunk Love, uh, Spanglish, Uncut Gems more recently, and there's maybe one or two more. But like Rogan. He normally makes his own movies. That's not happening here. Although, you know, he did, he was one of the writers on the movie. But this is Seth Rogen in somebody else's movie. And as you say, you know, somebody that started off as a music video director and then went on to get critical acclaim for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. But at no point watching Green Hornet, do you not think that it's really strange seeing Seth Rogen? in this what i will say though is good he is good in this the interpretation of the character that they're going for the loud um party boy not drunk but you know he's he's really you know he's he's living up the bruce wayne playboy personality to to the max he's very much the typical or the stereotypical um, uh, spoiled rich kid where, um, you know, his, I mean, they open up with the movie and they're like, yeah, you, you, your mother's dead and you've been acting out at school. And then his dad, Tom Wilkinson, is, let's be honest, a prick. <laughs> and then he decides... It's like it, then it jumps twenty years and you see his partying lifestyle and you're like, yeah, well, he's not getting any um any respect from his dad or or love or attention. So he's this is his way of doing it. It's like I've got we've got a bunch of money. I'll just get drunk and party and be like a frat boy. Um, and it, it makes sense. It makes sense in terms of um 
the financial status of his family, um, the fact that there's not a strong uh, parental figure uh, that's taking active interest in him. Yeah, it's it's smartly done. Um, and also why he has no skills because he's never had to learn any. <laughs> and he has to kind of rely on Kato to do literally everything. Um, that's probably my major criticism of this role, this movie. Uh, Jade Cho does a great job as Kato. But man, do they give him literally every single skill in the book. He is a expert at everything. Music, dancing, singing, engineer, creating stuff from scratch, mechanic, fighting, cook, uh, making the world's greatest coffee. He, he is literally the best at everything. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I was waiting. Coffee, coffee. When's he going to yeah. mention the coffee? I mean, that... Yeah initiates that's their relationship that's the origin of them coming together the fact that he's the one that makes brit's coffee and he's got this kit this like coffee machine that he has made himself and he's it just makes me want coffee whenever yeah whenever i see him make it but that's kato though that's the whole that's his character that he can do everything because it's it's batman and robin it's green arrow and kato well, what's happening here? Clearly, the most capable of the two is Cato, but Green Hornet gets all the recognition. And, you know, it's always been a story point that comes up for Cato, like, hey, what about me? No one's talking about me. It's Green Hornet this, Green Hornet that. They found an interesting way to work in the gas gun, and they make a joke out of it, like saying, hey, are you saying I can't fight? And there's the joke where, you know, he's... He's in a coma, like because it's so yeah. uh, poignant, and then he has to to modify it. But I did like yeah. I did like um, their relationship with Brit as a character. You mentioned when the movie opened and he was a kid. Like in that time, they or in that moment, they did such a good job to tell you what that character, who that character was, and what it was about. We find him when we first introduced to or reintroduced to him as, as Rogan, where he is a playboy. But when he was a kid, he got in a fight because he was sticking up for somebody. He was doing the right thing. So for me, I thought that was enough. That was like a very quick introduction to him as a kid. At his core, that's who he is. So when he's older and he does, you know, be a crime fighter, you know that he's, at his core, he is a good guy that wants to do the right thing and he wants to, protect people yeah um which is well done it's just it was as i said with the the over um over qualifications of kato it was just on the i'm like this guy would never have just been a rich dude's coffee maker slash mechanic like with someone with someone that much talent i don't see him sticking around with uh, James Reed for as long as he did. I know, it but... It just seems so strange. No, but he was always doing more. It was never just that. He, like, Brit calls him out. Why is it that you're a mechanic that makes my dad coffee? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, like, why, what, yeah. why, why is that a thing? And then he shows him, you know, the lens he's gone to armour up his cars, like, to make them bulletproof and, and all those things to they were saying that that he was getting paranoid in his old age, but then it was proven that people were definitely out to get him. Yeah. Um, also, why I've forgotten since I watched this movie when it came out was Christoph Waltz as Chudnovsky, or you know, as they later call him, Bloodnovsky. Amazing. <laughs> he, I, I, hey, I completely forgot James Franco was in this at all. <laughs> like. Completely yeah, like, the, like an opening up. scene, which does a great job. Christoph Waltz, again, another role where he has a phenomenal character uh, introduction where, you know, his character of Chadnovsky is literally the guy who runs all crime in LA, regardless of how big or small. Um, and James Franco runs a club and starts selling drugs out of his own club. Um, so Chadnovsky's like, hey, you know, I run this town. You sell your stuff through me. Like, don't, what are you doing? 
but James Franco calls him out for being old and like not intimidating and all this sort of stuff. And then he very quickly gets rid of that belief right off the bat. But it creates this weird comedic undertone of like, he actually feels like he has an image problem. Like, yeah, but the reason why you're successful is because no one knows who you are. Like criminals know Chadnovsky, but no one else does. But yeah, it's, it's the, uh, the, asking people for like validation of like i'm not scary i literally cut people's heads off i'm not scary i had i made a gun with two barrels you know how hard (laughs) this was but i like Like, it though it it reminded me of the end of batman begins where gordon and batman's on the roof and gordon's talking about escalation like you're wearing a mask you're jumping off rooftops take this guy for example and it's that thing where you know you say that joker wouldn't exist without batman and here you've got, because you have the Green Hornet, it feels as though Chudovsky, that he needs to come up with this new identity more in line with a supervillain. So I do like that, and it works. And, you know, this movie, it is a comedy. Yeah. So it's, it, yeah. It, is, um, it is supposed to be funny. Yeah. It just, you know, it just... Again, like I said, Christoph Waltz, phenomenal char- uh, the character interaction, well, his character introduction is so so on par of like, he confidently walks in the club alone, doesn't bring any of his goons because he's like, ah, c- this guy's a nobody, I can deal with this. And when he first gets introduced in this first scene, you think like the I'm not scary is like, like almost like a, like underpin of like, oh, he's just doing this because someone's brought it up. But then when it becomes a defining character trait, I was like, I don't think you really needed that. But yeah, because it's a comedy, of course you got to play it up. you got to play yeah. up. He's He's got to go big because he's going up against someone who's also big. Like if he'd gone small, he wouldn't have stood out at all. He'd been a, he'd been two one note. Um, but his, <laughs> his two sidekicks, Popeye played by Jamie Harris and then Chili played by Chad L. Coleman, who I'm familiar with from The Expanse. Um, he's the guy who runs Tyrrell Station, and he does a phenomenal job. And I'm like, man, this movie has a bunch of guys in the background I forgot. Like, D.A. Frank Scanlon, played by David Harbour of Stranger Things. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> looking a lot younger here. <laughs> a lot yeah, younger. no beard. Yeah, you know, he's, you know, he's more trim. Um but the second you hear his voice, you're like, yeah, yeah, that's David Arbour. <laughs> yeah, and he's really good in this. He is. Yeah. He is good. And he ends up getting his comeuppance. You know, I did read something that his character, Scanlon, I think he was, yeah, in the, originally, whether it was the radio serial or the comics, he was actually a good friend of Britt Reid. So they've obviously changed it up here and had him be more of a foe. Yeah. Um and yeah that he was he was always in the um he's definitely in the 90s comic series but I do believe he was also in the uh radio serials back in the in the 30s. But yeah, it's it's a smart way especially if if there were fans who were familiar with the characters around him. Um his introduction is at the funeral of uh James Reed and he really seems to ingratiate himself to Brit at the funeral of like, I had a, a famous judge father. I understand where you're coming from. If you ever need help, someone to talk to. And you're like, huh. And then the movie kind of forgets about him for nearly an hour before he pops back up again. Yeah, he does a really good job. Um, but someone else who gets really underutilized, Edward James Almos as Axford, the like editor-in-chief of the paper, or at least the co-editor of the paper who runs it um, underneath. James Reed, and then is like mentoring Brit when he takes over the paper, the Daily Sentinel. So for me, he's the character you would expect to double cross Brit and not Scanlan. So I watched this movie when it first came out at the cinema. And then years later, picked it up on Blu-ray and then watched it again for this. And each time, I just forget. I'm waiting for this character to turn and screw him over. But it doesn't happen. He's a legit yeah. good guy that wants to look after the paper and for the paper to keep on going. But I think it's good, though. It, it comes in and out, and he always serves a purpose. 
a character who I think is underutilized. Cameron Diaz as Lenore Case. She's just there as someone that Cato and Brit are attracted to. Yeah, and it's really strange because this they do this love triangle thing throughout the movie, which annoyed me mercilessly because one uh also in 20 you know a movie from 2011 and looking at it with 2020 lenses the first thing seth rogan does when she turns up in his office as a temp is kind of make uh, a comment about her attractiveness and then kind of make some uh, a comment about how old she is for a temp job uh, and she has this ridiculous background of criminology and journalism. And she's, <laughs> yeah, she's applying yeah. as a secretary. You're like, she is, a paper? <laughs> she's overqualified. But yeah, I, I had the same thoughts watching it. Like the, the interaction with her character really dates this movie. Yeah, um, especially as well, because she at no point shows any... Uh, romantic or sexual interest in Seth Rogen, but there is a little bit with her and Kato. And then uh, Seth Rogen's character, who, by the way, is sleeping with really attractive women because uh, he's like a bit of a playboy, completely focuses on this woman who does has no interest with him and he gets jealous and weird with Kato about it. Yeah, and do you know what? Bro- they've been all bromance, you know, this big bromance about fighting time together and yeah. stuff. And you're like, it completely derails it their relationship and it actually made me hate his character the way he was acting yeah for a good from, half of this movie from what i know of kato he would not go after a woman that was with or green hornet was attracted to and that just rang untrue for me that kato wouldn't act on it is that okay yeah. and, and you know even if it should even if the weren't crime fighters hey we're buddies i can see you like her we don't know if it's going to go anywhere. He wouldn't then just try and cut in. That, again, I didn't think yeah. that would be something Cato would do. But yeah, Cameron yeah. Diaz in this is just really underutilized. She really is. It was, yeah. Yeah. It was quite disappointing to see. For like, I think it's a good 20 or 25 minutes uh, in the middle of this movie, both Cato and uh, Lenore are just dropped entirely because of this kind of falling out they have. And you're like, uh, this, this movie just goes weird in that point. It like uh, superhero movies can typically have a drag in the middle because you've, you've moved, you're moving from act two or you're, you're in act two and you're kind of crossing the needle between the antagonist and the protagonist and you've got to move the main plot along and then you've got to set the things in necessary for your turnaround in act three. But for this one, especially it kind of just gets lost in the middle there until he realizes, uh, because of something that DA Scanlon says to him, like, wait a minute, my father's been squashing. Um, well, he, Scanlon asks him to stop printing so much stuff on the Green Hornet because it's making him look bad because he's up for re-election. And then he starts noticing that his dad had cancelled a bunch of articles about the same sort of thing. And that's what drives him back to go to Cameron Diaz's character to be like, can you look after this? I need someone who I can trust because I don't trust anyone that paper. What the heck's going on? Um, and that's when the movie finally gets back on schedule. But yeah, for like a good 20 minutes there, I felt it, the whole movie was spinning its wheels. Mm, yeah. No one's moving this stuff along except for, thank God, Christoph Waltz tr- deciding he wants to dress all in red and call himself Budnovsky <laughs> and comes which up I with a stupid like. catchphrase. <laughs> yeah. Which like, is cool. Yeah, without him, I would have, like, this movie would have been unwatchable in that middle part. Hey, do you know that? It nearly wasn't him. Originally, they were looking at Nicolas Cage. Oh, that would have been odd. I well, could see it. I, I, I could listen. see it for the, the cheesiness. <laughs> but the, okay, he didn't work out with Cage, and he had to move on. But he did, uh, he did intend to play the character in a particular way, and he wanted him to have 
a Jamaican accent. And the director wasn't on board with that. He's like, hey, Nick, we don't want you playing this character with a Jamaican accent. So I don't know if they went straight from Cage to Waltz, but it worked out. <laughs> like they got the yeah. right person in it. But when watching this film, there's a guy, and I'm like, that meth dealer looks a lot like Edward Furlong, but he couldn't be, surely. And it bloody it is. Yes. It actually Edward is. Furlong. I've seen him in Terminator 2. He's in a Crow movie, I think the third one. And yeah. then this. And I know he's done other stuff, like I think um, Detroit Rock City, is that one of his? But he's done other stuff. Yeah. But I was very surprised to see yeah. Edward Furlong in this movie playing Tupper. Hey, yeah, dealer. Yes, weird. Um, one thing I think we should talk about is the car. Like this was a big part of the marketing. Is this sweet car they call the Black Beauty? It's the uh, the official name of the car, and it is uh, for the most part the hero car. It's a 1965 Chrysler Imperial. They made a lot. They made I think it's 28 different cars for this for the various stunts and stuff throughout the movie wow. and they rode off 25 of them oh, no. and they're all <laughs> they're all chrysler imperials from model 62 to 66 because they didn't change the body style but 28 cars and you wrote off 25 of them who was your stunt driver <laughs> <laughs> seth rogan oh, no. this yeah the, the car looks fantastic and i don't know if it's been used elsewhere but in this movie where they have the headlights be green brilliant yeah and they use that a lot in the marketing as well in in the ads in the posters but as a visual yeah it looked fantastic you've got this all black car you hear the engine and then green headlights yeah um and yeah it's got machine guns on it rocket launchers it's got a, a mounted machine gun on the back that you can shoot out of like you said, bulletproof. It, inside the suicide doors on the front, it's got machine guns in the doors. Like, it's mental. It's mental. Some of it is comedically silly, like the machine guns in the doors, so they have to open the doors to use the machine guns <laughs> when they're getting shot at. But, yeah, it is It is a beautiful car. It is, like, really, really nice design. Um, you know, A+. Plus. <laughs> the costumes... They did a good job. I mean, Kato's dressed in black with a domino mask. Yeah. Achieve that. <laughs> looks just like him. And and the green hornet costume as well. I think it'll, it'll look really cool. But again, like so many times watching it, you think, oh, that's Seth Rogen as a superhero dressed yeah. in green wearing a domino mask. It reminded me, remember years ago, they were talking about doing a comedic Green Lantern movie with Jack yeah. Yeah. That was in development hell for many years and it never happened. But this one did. <laughs> We've got Yeah. Yeah. I like it. I like seeing Seth Rogen in a role like this because it's not something that has happened since. We've not seen him as the action guy. But the costumes, yeah, yeah they they nailed them. I like it first with Kato before he had the classic mask. It had the goggles, which looks like a mask. It's kind of like it was partway there for having his costume. Uh, Britt Reed as Greenhorn, he had the, the mask around his mouth, which looked more like how he used to look in like maybe the 30s and the 40s. Yeah. Because they did that a fair bit, didn't they, where they, they nodded to what's come before. Sometimes yeah. they, they weren't subtle about it at all. <laughs> When you've got Kato in his pencil drawings and he lingers yeah. on Bruce Lee, you're like, oh, that's a bit heavy-handed. <laughs> we get yeah, it. Um, we played the role before you. Yeah, and also uh, they do from the old 60s uh, TV show, like when they're doing a montage, they do the Green Hornet, like, like little cartoon like cut thing uh, from in the editing. Um, but – it's funny that you mentioned the the bandana across the mouth because in the comics he was the grand nephew of the original Lone Ranger John Reed. So the bandana across the mouth is almost like a callback to him. Yeah, that's true. And that yeah, that is that is a fact. Yes, yeah. the Green Hornet is related to the Lone Ranger. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's mental. 
Uh, yeah, and the, you know, this movie it finally gets to its like its big um, finale where he's recorded uh, a confession by Scanlon on a sushi drive, <laughs> a USB drive. Uh, and he's racing to get it back to the paper to get it onto the website and uploaded to show that DA Scanlon's a uh, piece of crap. Um, and he forgot to hit record. So the USB drive is actually empty. Um, good thing that they've turned up there and they're driving the half the car through the newspaper offices because that way they can kill both Chudnovsky and DA Scanlon because otherwise he'll go off scot-free. Um, in the like most comedic way, like run the drive the car, half the car, into him and drive him off the edge of the building and then eject a seat. <laughs> yeah, which hey. is a bench seat. It's not two ejector seats. <laughs> no, it was no, an ejector no. couch. <laughs> that was Brit's idea. That was his contribution yeah. to the Black Beauty. And then yeah, the parachuting down. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Odd, very odd. And there, there's a so they make sure to do. Ironically, it's during the um, confession. My bet, my favorite gag of the whole movie happens, which is uh, Seth Rogen does. You know, they have the thing of where when Kato's heart starts pumping like fast, he suddenly it's like time slows down, and that's one of the reasons he's so good at kung fu uh, and martial arts is because for him, time's moving slowly. They make it look like that's happened, but Brit. And he's putting the pieces together, the exposition of how his father was killed and how it's D.A. Scanlon's fault and that sort of thing. And then when he finally cuts back, he's like, I assume from the dumb up look you've had on your face for the last five minutes that you still can't figure this out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he actually stood there, yeah, sat there with a dumb look on his face for five minutes as he actually put the pieces together. But yeah, like they called out themselves on that one. Yeah, yeah. That worked quite well for me. What what did you reckon to that visual cue when Kato was assessing a situation? So he's surrounded by bad guys, and then the weapons get highlighted in red. And you're and it's it's a visual cue to the audience. You can see what Kato's seen. Does that work for you? Um, I think if you had just done it once, it'd have been fine. And all you needed to do really is to do the the blood pump noise of the doof, doof, his heartbeat to let you know he's moving into that flow, flow state. But they, they, they did it a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, each time they did it, it lessened its effectiveness for me, um, which I can only, uh, they must, they must've done it on purpose. So when it like Brit will try to do it himself and he was seeing things, but with the green, yeah. green highlight in the weapons that he actually bungles it because he doesn't have the skill. But yeah, um, I think, you know, if you were going to do it as a serious movie, you'd have just done it the first time and then left like that. That's your, this is why he's so good. But um, for the comedic payoff, I don't think it really paid off, the, the fumble. Yeah, um, I mean, he, the, yeah, the, the first time, it was a distraction. It took me out of it. But as you say, though, it was like, it was like your f- favorite gag in the movie. See, he did work towards setting up that gag. I just, I don't know. Cause he, I mean, the, whoever they cast as Kato, that person is following Bruce Lee. Yeah. So in trouble, um, so I guess they had to do enough. You know, I, I read that the, that the people on casting, when the actor got the role, they didn't realize he was a famous pop star and he had this big audience. So it was a bit of a, a bit of a surprise for them. Yeah. Um, that's probably because right up until the last minute, it wasn't supposed to be Jay Chu. It was supposed to be, uh, Hong Kong martial arts star Stephen Chow. Oh, uh, wow. But his scheduling conflict stopped him from playing Kato. Oh, and um, he's the guy from Kung Fu Hustle and yeah. he's done others. Yeah, wow. Okay, wow. That that would have been different. And this, and he's not a pop star. He's an actor with martial arts experience and he's on comedies. So I can yeah, see how they um, yeah. So, yeah, that would have. Uh, that's probably why Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg were thinking that that way. Because um, back with Kevin Smith, he wanted uh, Jake Gyllenhaal as the Green Hornet and Jason Scott Lee as Kato back when he oh, was attached. Oh, that's interesting! Wow, yeah. so of Dragon think... fame, of course. Well, oh, yes, 
Wow, I like that. The Bruce Lee story. Yeah, yeah. Like, so someone oh, who he's... played young Bruce Lee. Yes. That's a great movie. Playing... Yeah. It's such a good movie. And Jake Gyllenhaal. Wow, that would have been different. You know, when you were talking about the Kevin Smith script earlier, I read that story as comics. Yeah. And I might put them out. So I've read a female Cato before she had a spin-off. And there's mention that Kevin Smith is working on a new Green Hornet animated series. So I'm wondering if that's going to take from his original script and his comics or if he's going to go in a whole other idea. But it's interesting to hear where he was looking for casting because I can see that. Yeah, because um, that you know at the time and he was attached, Jake Gyllenhaal, of course, almost stepped into Spider-Man 2 as Peter Parker because Tobey Maguire was injured. Um, but he managed to heal in time to start principal photography. But yeah, that's why he was like Jake Gyllenhaal. Absolutely, like he could be Green Hornet. Yeah, yeah it would have been a good um, bit. I mean, look at Spider-Man: Far From Home when he's playing Mysterio as a hero. Gyllenhaal can play that type of character in his sleep. Like he yeah. would have been a really, a really good fit. Um, yeah. The sound of this movie, like you know, we always had to talk about the soundtrack, the score. Uh, James Newton Howard, like he's done so many movies over the years. He was one of the composers on Batman Begins with Hans Zimmer. Uh, Dark Knight. I don't know if he came back for Dark Knight Rises, but. James Newton Howard, he's done so many movies over the years. Signed, I Am Legend, um, the four installments of the Hunger Games film series. And in this, it brings an interesting sound. And it's sat, the music is heroic when it needs to be, but then it's still aware of the fact that it is a comedy and it hits the tone really well. Yeah, um, my one criticism is it. Uh, when they they're about to do any scene featuring the Black Beauty, when they're about to start more antics, when he the theme that comes in there is really close to the '60s Batman theme, which makes sense given the the spoofy nature of the movie itself and the fact that in the '60s Green Hornet and Batman were on TV at the same time. Right. Okay. I have seen on TV Bruce Lee as Kato, and you did mention the guy's name earlier that played Rick Reed. Van Williams. You know, Van Williams, that's him. You know, they asked him for, to have a part in this movie, he turned them down. But anyway, I've seen them on TV, but it was a crossover with Batman 66. So for yeah, me, yeah. it sounded right. But maybe you're right. Maybe what you're saying is right that it, it is leading more towards Batman 66, but I was kind of thinking, oh, this is what Green Hornet sounds like. And I thought he was paying homage. I need to go back and listen to see what the 60s Green Hornet theme was. Yeah. And I, got, and I have to imagine um, being the fact that they did a crossover episode uh, and the era in which it was in on TV, uh, that was probably the same composer on both the Batman TV show and the Green Hornet TV show. Right. I mean, just okay. like the CW series these days, uh, like Neely's involved with all of them. Yeah. And uh, it's and with the Star Trek stuff, they usually use the same composers on those. Like, like it's got it's really hard. Even John Williams himself has talked about how hard it is to come up with something that's instantly recognizable, but yet distinctive when you're doing multiple uh, films of a similar ilk, whether it's, you know, like the adventure sound for Indiana Jones and the uh, comic book theme sound of Superman. And then you have the sci-fi opera of Star Wars. They're all distinct, but John, John Williams is John Williams. Like if like, it's gotta be really hard for a normal person. Like Danny Elfman can sound very samey from time yep. to time. So and when you well when you're having, you know the the most recognisable version of your character's theme from the '60s, it's got to be really hard to distinguish it from the Batman theme of the '60s. So I thought yeah, I thought they were doing. I thought that James Newton Howard was doing a really good job of capturing the '60s Green Hornet theme, but potentially it was capturing Batman. So again, I'd have, I'd have to go back and have a listen. What I like about what John Williams did with the Superman the movie theme 
is that when you've got like, the big beats of the song, it wanted the music to say Superman. And yeah. it does. Like when you're listening to it, when it's going up and down, that's that's the music saying Superman. It's beautiful. I love that. And yet it's why, you know, John Williams is one of the best. It's hard to come up with that distinctive sound. I mean, he's done it more than most. Yeah. <laughs> Jaws, Star Wars, Superman, Indiana Jones. I mean, we'll just keep going. But yeah, but you know, James Newton Howard, he it worked, it worked for me on this movie. Um, yeah. and the movies and the, the big thing about our soundtrack is you can do as that whatever you like, but you you can't leave big uh, silent portions unless it's done on purpose for the effectiveness or a scene. But nor can you be intrusive on the movie, and he's not intrusive. It, you never hear the music and it pull you out of a music the scene. He does exactly what he needs to. Um, so like I said, especially this is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be a fun movie, and so no no weird cues that suddenly turn too dark or too serious that dampens the uh, the impact of the scenes. And you know this is a fun movie, but at the same time, the movie does. It looks expensive. Like this is not a cheap movie, and you can see for the most part of the money on the screen, especially a lot of the action sequences with the Black Beauty really do hold up today but it's now been nine years since this movie first came out and we've not had a sequel they did have one planned Um, but it was cancelled yeah uh it's actually funny seth rogan and evan goldberg on this movie have said this their experience on this is the reason why they learned to do cheaper smaller films that studios won't pay attention to because um, they go when you're in the, the the fifteen to forty million dollar range for a studio, they're not looking over your shoulder what you're doing. What they're looking at is their big ten hole movie. That's the eighty to one hundred fifty million dollar movie, which for them was this. This was like a hundred twenty million dollar production budget. I mean, they had uh, people looking at them all the time, handing them notes and that sort of stuff. And what they were thinking while they were getting these notes and while they had all this, um, these studio execs looking at them was, man, what kind of crazy stuff are people getting away with on the other movies while they're looking at us? Um, which is what they learned, which is why their movies after this were probably more successful because they were freer. You know, things like The Interview and um, This Is The End and all the rest of the big, crazy things that they've gotten away with and you know then moved into tv of like coming with the that made them the money to go into tv as producers and not have to pay attention to studio notes because they're like <laughs> we're not your most expensive show or your most expensive film while you're busy fretting over what's happening on all the money you're spending in there we're, we're sneaking under the radar and it's worked for them i think if they were to make this movie today it would probably more be more to what they probably wanted out of this. Yeah, um, it, it should, and be, I don't think, yeah, it it should be a smaller movie. Like I, I yeah, like I, that it's big and flashy, but Greenhorn, it you should be able to to scale it back. Yeah, I don't think he would have cast himself in the lead today either. I no, think he would have not picked, a chance. <laughs> I think he would have picked <laughs> someone like a John Hamm or someone like yeah. that, someone to be the like the the. The, the the handsome doofus. <laughs> We'd have to go younger. It'd have to go younger than than John Hamm. Back in March 2012, producer Neil Moritz said that no sequel would be forthcoming since the movie did almost 250 million, but it made nowhere near what it needed to make to make for this movie to be successful. This came out after Avatar, where 3D was all the range. And this is one of the movies that suffered a 3D conversion, which cost them an extra $10 million just to have it kind of look like 3D. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that they're directly uh, measuring against is this is, this came out 2011. This is, we're already three movies into the Marvel Cinematic Universe by then. You know, we'd had, we'd had Iron Man, 
Incredible Hulk, Iron Man 2, and Thor by the time this came out. And when you're looking at what money they're pulling in, you know, they always say whatever the production budget of the film is to be like successful, which this was, you have to double the budget. It made the, double its budget back. But the Marvel movies were making on $120 million would have been making $400 million. Like that's, and that's filming in LA. There's a reason CW film all the TV shows in Vancouver. And it's because it's so much more expensive to film in LA. Like, uh, you know, that's why uh, Breaking Bad was filmed in Albuquerque was again, it was the same reason because the expense of filming in LA is so extortionate that they could film for a fraction of the price in Albuquerque. It's why Walking Dead is filmed in Atlanta is because again, cost, they get massive tax rebates and just, and shut down a, a LA street costs you a fortune yeah. and you have yeah. to, you, you get a lot less time. This like, yeah, there's a reason why we don't see many things. Say, say New York is the same. New York is massively expensive to film in. So, so yeah, if they were going to do a sequel, they would have needed to probably half the budget and film in a different city. Um, and how do you do that based off the way this ends? You know, one of the exactly big things right. we have yeah. spoken about yeah. is the idea between them was instead of being superheroes, so they couldn't have them use shooter innocence to get to them and work use that against them they posed as villains that creates problems for a sequel they at the movie they didn't win the public's trust and they're like yay we we believe in the green hornet it was the damn green hornet just shot brit reed during a press conference and so he would have been they've been public enemy number one there's no chernofsky left yeah but that is true to the character because that was the green hornet in kato i know it wasn't it was in that from the comics where they're posing as villains to do good from the inside. I'm pretty sure that's, that's who the characters are. And the ending of this movie, the dark Knight, isn't it? Batman yeah. going off, carrying the blame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Enemy. Yeah. And then they've got their like cool uh, color change on the car where it, the, in his high-speed chase, just pull over around a corner and change it from black to white, and the cops just go right by him. Which I like to do like that. Like they need to solve the problem. He's been shot in the shoulder, so they just make out like the Green Hornet shoots him in the shoulder at a press conference, and then he gets to go to the hospital and get looked at. So it's know, a smart I, way to get around yeah, it. And I do like a good secret identity. I like it, and it's something that is missing from the MCU. Uh, but we get it here. Britt Reed is got a secret identity, or you know. People don't know that he and Green Hornet are one and the same. So yeah. if we're going to rate this movie out of five. I got to give it, um, I got to give it a two and a half. Um, that big lag in the middle where uh, Kato, Green Hornet and Lenore are not talking really dragged this out for me. Um, it became hard. I, I actually, paused the movie and went and made myself lunch to then go sit back down and finish off the movie. Cause that was skidding on my nerves so badly. Um, and <laughs> just some of the, and just some of the other, the, the strange things that have dated the movie. Um, you know, it's, it's a problem with anyone who's not a big DC or Marvel film of who, who know exactly what they're producing and where they're producing it towards um, you know, whenever a smaller company approaches something of this nature, there's a, a, a lack of knowledge, a lack of uh, upper practiced hand of why a character like this works. And that's it, it, this movie just falls short for me. Um, and like I said, if they were to make this movie now, they wouldn't use Seth Rogen uh, as the lead. They would have picked, um, they would have picked accordingly. And that, that I, I feel it when I'm watching this movie. I'm going to come in a little bit higher. I'm going to come in at a three out of five. Um, I do like Seth Rogen, and this is an action comedy, one that I do find funny. I do have problems with it as well. Like We talked about the relationship, the love triangle, but it is, it's a fun movie, and this movie needs Christoph Waltz, and I am so glad that he is a part of this film. He is so entertaining in this um yeah I, it's it's a fun movie it's one that i've not 
revisited very often and it really is like an experiment because Seth Rogen has only ever done this kind of movie once and he's not going to do it again you know like he said he found it, it difficult and it was restrained it's it's fun like it is a fun movie but it's not a perfect movie uh, but I do like the relationship between Green Hornet and Kato when they're not squabbling now, three out of five, it's it's definitely worth watching, but I can see why it didn't go beyond this movie. Yeah, and you know, it's on Netflix right now. Um, it's Seth Rogen actually has a movie, I'm not sure when we're getting it here in Australia, called An American Pickle, where he gets accidentally sent back in time to another period, which I've I've got to check out. Um, and you know, he's I do like Seth Rogen, um, but this is this is not the sort of vehicle um i'd pick for him um and he you know he's learned that himself it's um, interesting though i, I like yeah, that i yeah, like it that that it that it exists so that he did it but yeah an american pickle looks interesting we get that in cinemas at the end of september yeah so in, um in the u.s so i'll definitely be checking that out yeah me too in the u.s it is available on hbo max which is the new streaming service so it's an original movie for that service. But yeah, but we get it on the big screen. Well, that's it for our episode all about the Green Hornet. If you want to contact us about this episode or request a topic for an upcoming show, you can find us on Facebook as Sounds Like Comics Podcast. As always, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.